Welcome to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast covering a broad range of topics related to the practice of intensive care medicine. Sound Critical Care provides comprehensive critical care programs to hospitals across the country. To learn more about our programs and career opportunities, visit www.soundphysicians.com. And now, your host, Dr. Sergio Zanotti. Today, we will continue with our discussion on acute and chronic liver failure with Dr. Rahul Nanchal. This is a continuation of our previous episode where we discussed in detail guidelines related to the management of adult acute and acute and chronic liver failure in the ICU. In the first part of our discussion, we talked about cardiovascular and hematologic considerations. Today, we're going to talk about pulmonary, renal, and endocrine considerations to finalize our discussion related to this topic. Rahul, welcome back to Critical Matters. Thank you, Sergio. Happy to be here. Obviously, a, a fascinating topic. Uh, we, we discussed a lot of issues related to acute uh, on chronic liver failure in our previous episode. We dealt, uh, de- dove in a little bit more detail to the cardiovascular and hematology considerations. And today, we're going to start with pulmonary. And there's a lot we can talk about, but I want to focus on three specific topics, uh, portopulmonary hypertension, hepatopulmonary syndrome, and hepatic hydrothorax. So why don't we start with portopulmonary hypertension? Just tell us a little bit about what it is and what are the current recommendations for management. Sure. So I have portopulmonary hypertension is a uh, specific type of pulmonary hypertension that occurs in uh you know, specifically patients with chronic liver disease. Now, I, you know, I, I don't think we, we need to get in too much into the mechanisms. You know, the, the, the mechanisms are complex and, you know, probably have to do with, uh, you know, changes in the, uh, uh, you know, at the level of the pulmonary arterioles combined with the increased flow through the pulmonary system. But, but just, you know, be, be that as it may, just suffice it to say that, you know, these people are at risk for, uh, or for pulmonary hypertension, and especially the liver t- transplant candidates are being screened all the time because uh, if you do develop pulmonary hypertension, uh, you know above a certain level, it is actually a contraindication to liver transplant because uh, people have acute right heart failure during the reperfusion phase once, uh, you know, and, and you know basically just a very high incidence of mortality if you know of uh, if that happens. And so uh, people are always on the, uh, at, at liver centers, people are always on the lookout for the development of you know, pulmonary hypertension in the, uh, uh, in the context of liver disease. And this is actually a, uh, you know, a arterial, this is not venous hypertension, this is actually you know, arterial, pulmonary arterial hypertension. So uh, unlike diastolic dysfunction where you know, the, the pulmonary hypertension occurs because of pulmonary venous hypertension, this actually occurs, you know, is, is truly a, 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 uh, a disease that is at the specific, at specific at the level of the you know, sort of pulmonary arterioles. And again, uh, Sergio, not a lot of uh, data on what and how to treat this. What we do know is that you know if you do treat this and people are able to re- and the pulmonary artery pressures are able to be reduced, uh, people can get liver transplants. And so you know it's it's sort of an important entity to think about and and you know and and sort of tra- sort of start treatment if able. Now, the treatment is, uh, you know, what to treat it with is is sort of, you know, sort of controversial. The reason it is controversial, again, is because there is not high quality data. There is uh, just one 
randomized control trial which included exclusively you know portopulmonary hypertension patients uh, and uh, which showed that mascipentan which is you know one of the uh, you know one of the drugs used for pulmonary hypertension uh, sort of improved uh, uh, hemodynamics and uh, was safe in this population another drug which is called uh, risaguat was uh, was again you know one of the drugs used for for pulmonary hypertension they were they had about 13 patients with portopulmonary hypertension in that trial and so uh, so much of the much of the literature that is out there uh, is extrapolated from the you know broader pulmonary hypertension uh, literature and the, although there are some small uncontrolled studies some small observational studies of you know pulmonary hypertension directed therapy what we do know is that you know we should try and treat this and the uh, and we should sort of try and and uh, bring the mean pulmonary artery pressure below 35 uh, which is sort of you know the target for for, for liver transplantation and uh, you know again there was a conditional recommendation there was no quality of evidence uh, for all of the factors that i have described but again this is a unique and one of the very unique entities where this is very specific to liver disease and uh, you know and and i think treatment of this uh, is is uh, is probably necessary not you know obviously liver transplantation is a uh, is you know sort of sort of the ultimate goal but you know even in terms of increasing exercise capacity quality of life and things of that nature i think something that should be considered for treatment excellent and again, emphasizing that whole concept in, 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 in clinicians who are not um, working in transplant centers, they might uh, overlook that even some situations like this, when treated, would make somebody eligible. So it's important to make sure that we have the right referrals and the right support to uh, assure that we're providing the best options for our patients, uh, regardless of what we can offer at our institution or not. Uh, absolutely. I, I think if a liver disease, a person with liver disease gets diagnosed with uh, pulmonary hypertension, that person should likely be referred to a liver transplant center because, uh, you know, again, they probably are the people who have the most experience with, you know, what to do and, you know, and, and how to do this and how to, uh, you know, how to best evaluate so that people become eligible for liver transplants. Yep. Excellent. The second topic I wanted to ask you about, Rahul, relates to hepatopulmonary syndrome. And I still remember how fascinated I was when I first uh, understood and actually saw at the bedside orthodioxia. And it just illustrates how uh, pathophysiology sometimes can be so interesting uh, from the clinical perspective. Yeah, this is, you know, again, this is one of the, uh, so uh, it is interesting, Sergio, that, you know, these are two opposite end, uh, ends of the spectrum in terms of, you know, how the pulmonary vascular bed is uh, is affected in liver disease. You know, one is the development of portopulmonary hypertension, and, you know, the other is the development of these intravascular pulmonary, some IVPDs or intravascular pulmonary dilatations, which sort of lead to hypoxemia and, uh, you know, and, and sometimes refractory hypoxemia. But uh, there is this phenomena called orthodeoxia and pretepnia, which is just the opposite of what you find in heart failure. Uh, and so you were, uh, uh, you lay down and you lay down flat, and you know your shortness of breath gets better, and your oxygen saturations actually get get much better. Uh, and so you know the it sort of behaves like a right to left uh, intracardiac shunt at the 
level of the atrium uh, you know just that it is it is not it is you know it, it, these are uh, pulmonary dilatations at the level of the arterioles and the uh, and the capillaries and uh, leading to you know severe hypoxemia uh, so again I, you know the the interesting thing about hepatopulmonary syndrome uh, Sergio is that it is very responsive to liver transplantation and people can be hypoxemic even after transplantation and you know and hypoxemic for a for a few months uh, you know it uh, some people just you know wonderfully get cured and we don't know you know which who will and who won't but you know there are some people that where the hypoxemia even persists but over time it gets uh, you know it gets much much better and there is a exception to uh, to the uh, liver transplant allocation score for uh, hepatopulmonary syndrome because if left alone the people with hepatopulmonary syndrome actually do uh, with exactly the same um, same severity of disease people with hepatopulmonary syndrome long term tend to do worse than people who don't have hepatopulmonary syndrome and liver transplantation is actually a good cure and so uh, uh, you know and so the people should be considered for this the uh, uh, there have been uh, a, uh, a variety of uh, things tried for this uh, ultimately there was only one randomized control trial of garlic uh, which was done in india <laughs> and you know some showed some benefit in in oxygenation but you know it was a very small trial so in the end we just ended up saying uh, you know you by pending liver transplantation you just uh, we really don't know how to take care of this, this is just a best practice statement so you know please give oxygen and provide supportive care and the important aspect of not only recognizing the pathophysiology, which obviously is very interesting for us as clinicians, but the important message seems to be, Rahul, that this is something that is reversible with liver transplant and that supporting the patients as we get them ready for a liver transplant or as they get evaluated for a potential liver transplant is really what we should be focusing on at the bedside. Yes, that is true, sir. The last topic I wanted to talk within the pulmonary realm relates to hepatohydrothorax, which is a difficult um, clinical situation to manage sometimes and that is very uh, usual or something that we see commonly in these patients as they have advanced disease that can cause a lot of symptoms. So what are the thoughts on uh, current thoughts and the recommendation on management of hepatic hydrothorax? Yeah, you know, so there was a paucity of data on how to do this uh, uh, Sergio, and as you, as you have mentioned, you know, this is, yeah, the, the, so ascites, you know, sort of you could, uh, I think in my opinion, ascites is probably more manageable than hepato, hepatic hydrothorax in terms of symptoms, because once you develop hepatic hydrothorax, you get, uh, you know, you get this, uh, you know, you get short of breath and, and you know, you get this intense respiratory distress and you know and things of that nature and so it is a more difficult entity to manage uh, in in my view than than just uh, than the societies you know obviously um, uh, tips uh, which decreases the portal pressures would you know is very helpful in uh, in both you know in taking care of refractory ascites and hepatic hydrothorax you know, however, we do know that, you know, TIPS also increases the risk of hepatic encephalopathy. It may not be possible in all, uh, you know, on all, all these patients. So if TIPS is not possible, we did say as a best practice statement that the tube thoracostomy with an attempt to pleurodesis should be tried. Now, there is a 
there's one, there, there is sort of a misconception with a uh, sort of a slight misconception with you know tube thoracostomy in these patients as well that if you do tube thoracostomy there will be continuous leakage of fluid there will be electrolyte loss and uh, and things of that nature or you know there will be infections you know however uh, most of the studies uh, that have been out there have not, not really borne this out and in systematic reviews of just uh, of you know tube thoracostomies for non-malignant effusions in general uh, rates of spontaneous pleurodesis have been uh, very very high including uh, the people with uh, hepatic hydrothorax and and so you know in, in an attempt to relieve symptoms and an attempt for palliation you know this can be tried uh, with uh, uh, you know with either you know to either a palliative intent or you know or spontaneous pleurodesis uh, you know in fact in in people who were who got a uh, there was a small series of patients uh, in uh, who were, who had tube thoracostomy as a bridge to liver transplant and there was spontaneous uh, pleurodesis in about 50% of the patients and so if you do this you know it is quite possible that the, that there'll be pleurodesis and that uh, you know th that you you might get rid of the problem Excellent, and 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 we did mention uh, the last two that we we discussed um, actually uh, fall within a category that uh, we didn't discuss at the beginning. I just wanted to make sure that we emphasize this to our listeners. We talked about strong recommendations as we recommend. We talked and what that implies. We talked about conditional recommendations as we suggest, and you also have a series of best practice statements. Could you just give us a a short commentary, Rahul, on the best practice statement? Sure. So I, I think, you know, a best practice statement is a ungraded strong recommendation, uh, which are uh, developed uh, in, uh, uh, you know, in some, in very strict adherence to some guidelines. And the criteria for best practice statements i think there are there are six criteria for best practice statements okay so, the, so one of the criteria is is the statement actionable so you know if if you make a best practice statement can an action be taken uh, the second criteria is is the message necessary the third criteria is you know if is the net benefit or harm unequivocal uh, the next, the fourth criteria is, it's, you know, is the evidence difficult to connect and summarize? Uh, the fifth criteria is, is the rational explicit? And the sixth criteria is, can, you know, can the grade be formally applied to it? And where a grade cannot be formally applied and the evidence is really, you know, difficult to sort of collect, summarize and, you know, and use meta-analytic uh, analytic techniques. And there is a question that really needs a statement which is actionable. I think that is how we develop best practice statements. And so I think the panel thought that this was such a common problem that, uh, you know, there and there needed to be some guidance of, you know, what to do, but there was not enough evidence where we could sort of summarize it and grade it formally. And so then, therefore, we issued a best practice statement, if that makes sense. It does. It, it, and it's a very important uh, consideration because you're really identifying as a as a panel of experts a very relevant clinical issue that uh, clinicians encounter on a regular basis 
and providing guidance in those instances, obviously, with actionable uh, recommendations is also very valuable. And like you said, another big uh, part of the effort that you've done with this document and with this whole process is identifying potential gaps in our knowledge that are worth uh, investigating further with research in the future. Yes. Excellent. Well, we covered uh, the three pulmonary topics that, that, that I think are most germane and relevant to acute and chronic liver failure. There's other things that you talk about in the document that will refer our audience to the document to read about that really relate to how we treat patients with respiratory failure in, in, in the ICU in general. But uh, I wanted to move on to the renal considerations, Rahul. And in the renal considerations, obviously, the, the one and the foremost topic for acute and chronic liver failure, from my perspective at least, that I wanted to touch on is the hepatorenal syndrome, often encountered and often misunderstood. Yes. So, uh, so sorry, can we uh, maybe start with just discussing hepatorenal syndrome, uh, you know, a little bit? I think, the, you know, maybe the general audience may benefit from... Uh, Absolutely. Yeah, so, you know, traditionally, hepatorenal syndrome, so, you know, hepatorenal syndrome, very simply explained, is a non-structural kidney injury that occurs because of the underlying pathophysiology of liver disease which is splanchnic vasodilation but intense renal vasoconstriction because of arterial underfilling you know so that is sort of you know in a very very succinct way explaining you know uh, the pathophysiology of uh, you know of liver disease in general and what happens to the kidney so that you know because of uh, arterial underfilling there is you know this intense retention of salt and water because the kidney thinks that uh, you know, it's being underfilled and, you know, that's the whole, you know, process of development of ascites and things of that nature. And, you know, as the liver disease progresses, as vasodilation progresses, uh, you know, more of this, this sort of becomes a vicious cycle and the, the vasoconstriction in the kidney becomes even more intense. And then, uh, you know, and finally the kidneys, uh, you know, sort of fail, but, it, but really there is, there is not a, a lot of structural damage to the kidney. So it isn't like, you know, you find tubular necrosis or things of that nature. If you look at the kidney, the, the kidney sort of, uh, you know, uh, uh, appears to be structurally nor normal. And the way we used to diagnose uh, hepatorenal syndrome was that, you know, we would wait for a creatinine to go up to 2.5 in, uh, you know, in two weeks and then, uh, and this was, and I'm talking about type one hepatorenal syndrome, and there were two types, you know, and the definitions have changed. And th then we would say, well, okay, you know, now the creatinine is 2.5, it's been a couple of weeks, you know, let's try and give albumin to make sure that people are not hypovolemic, let's stop the diuretics, let's make sure that there is no shock, uh, let's make sure, you know, that it is actually in the context of, you know, cirrhosis and ascites, uh, you know, which is, you know, which is liver disease, and then let's make sure that there is no, uh, you know, structural kidney injury, which means you know, they would say, or there is no other process going on, which would say, okay, you know, there is no proteinuria, there are no red blood cell casts on, on urine microscopy, and the renal ultrasound is normal. So that was the definition that we used to use, you know, for uh, for hepatorenal syndrome, uh, you know, sort of a acute kidney injury, very, very specific to patients with liver disease. And then we realized that, you know, when we were, you know, when we were doing this, A, we had all of these problems with creatinine because, 
you know, uh, you wait for a creatinine to go up to 2.5. It may never go up to 2.5 because there's no muscle mass in, in, in many of these uh, liver patients. And that we are we were delaying therapy for too long. And if we delayed therapy for too long, you know, it was people, you know, sort of uh, had, uh, you know, really worse, uh, had bad outcomes. And so as the as our definitions of acute kidney injury in general evolved, uh, the definitions of acute kidney injury for, uh, you know, for liver disease evolved as well. And hepatorenal syndrome type 1 became hepatorenal syndrome AKI or AKI hepatorenal syndrome. And the definition changed to say, well, uh, if you have a uh, increase of creatinine of 0.3 in 48 hours and you meet the rest of the criteria, you know, that is hepatorenal syndrome. And uh, and so and so and it was done in an effort so that you know we could recognize this uh, recognize this early. It took away some of the problems of you know of waiting for creatinine of 2.5, and we could start therapy. So so you know I, I think I think now what has happened you know due to that is that you know people are very much more attuned to the development of you know acute kidney injury in people who have liver disease. And much more attuned to the development of hepatorenal syndrome in the uh, you know in 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 sort of people who have liver disease. Excellent overview. And with regards to the specific recommendation, uh, it relates to vasopressors. Uh, what you'd explained in terms of the pathophysiology is we have severe vasodilation peripherally and severe vasoconstriction at the level of the liver. So I presume that what we're trying to do is increase the perfusion pressure that the kidney sees by raising the the pressure uh, of the blood getting there is that correct yeah that's correct so that's in essence what we are doing we are trying to you know we are trying to construct these splatnik ways of you know uh, uh bed raise the mean arterial pressure and direct blood flow to the kidney so that is in essence what we are trying to do uh, you know with these vasopressors you know obviously we are also trying to you know make sure that you have adequate circulating volume so you know albumin has is sort of become the sort of part of treatment of hepatorenal syndrome but the specific use of vasoconstrictors in this in this context is exactly what you described is to divert blood flow to the kidney and to perfuse the kidney better and the recommendation that the guidelines made was to recommend using vasopressors over no use over not using vasopressors in critically ill patients with acute and chronic liver failure who develop hepatorenal syndrome. Any specific comments on the on the uh, vasopressor that you would recommend? Uh, so, uh, you know, and this is a this is an area of where people have. Uh, you know, people have very strong opinions, I think. So telepressin is not available in the US. And if you look at, you know, most of Europe, what is used there is telepressin. Uh, however, if you, you know, if you look at, uh, and granted there are not a lot of head-to-head -head comparisons, but if you do look at a systematic review, and now that has been, you know, that, that was published in, uh, you know, the Cochrane database, and I think uh, just, just underwent a recent revision, uh, they were not able to find any sort of, uh, you know, firstly, the evidence was very low quality, but they were not able to find uh, evidence of any, of, uh, of benefit of one vasopressor over the other. So whether you use norepinephrine or you used vasopressin, or, or sorry, telrepressin, uh, there, was, there, there was no benefit, there was no difference in outcomes. Now, when you use mitodrine and octreotide, you know, it, there was there was some suggestion 
that the reversal of hepatorenal syndrome may be a little delayed by using mitorenal octreotide, which is, you know, what we use for splenic vasoconstriction, uh, uh, you know, in the United States most often. Uh, but again, you know, the, the quality of evidence was, was very low. And, uh, you know, if you have to, so because telepresin is not available in the US, you know, if you have to use norepinephrine, that requires a central line in it. And in most places, I, I would presume admission to the intensive care unit. And, you know, mitodrin and octreotide could, can just be given, you know, on the floor. And so one has to benefit, uh, you know, sort of risks and benefits of, you know, doing either. And so therefore, our recommendation was general that, you know, what if you diagnose vasopressor syndrome, please use, you know, a vasopressor agent. And that vasopressor agent could be, Telrepressin could be norepinephrine or mitodrenal octreotide. Excellent. Another important aspect uh, of hepatorenal syndrome relates to, to the fact that A, it's not reversed or cured with dialysis, but B, it is reversed and cured with a, with a liver transplant. So identifying those patients who are truly candidates for, for liver transplantation is going to be very important. And also how we would continue to support the renal failure it deteriorates. Could you comment on that, Rahul, please? Yeah, sure. So, so, and that, and and so, and, and uh, Sergey, you make an, a wonderful point, an excellent point, that if you develop an uric renal failure with hepatotype one hepatorenal syndrome, uh, you know, and you're sure it is hepatorenal, so you know it's it's not a reversible cause of acute kidney injury, but it is HRS AKI, and you develop an uric renal failure to the point where you're requiring renal replacement therapy. So renal you know, just placing people on renal replacement therapy does not, you know, it, it does not recover with just renal replacement therapy. Liver transplantation is what is needed. And uh, so the people who should get, you know, should, uh, again, the people who should be put on renal, uh, renal replacement therapy are the people who are candidates for liver transplant. And, uh, you know, and the and renal replacement therapy should most often, or most often, you know, I would, there was strongly urge people to consider to use in hepatorenal syndrome to use renal replacement therapy as a bridge to liver transplantation. Excellent. The final topic I want to ask you about relates to endocrine and nutrition considerations. And I would like to start with the ever ongoing discussion of glucose control. And uh, the, the guidelines have a strong recommendation for serum glucose control. Could you tell us a little bit more about that, Rahul? Uh, yeah, so, you know, <laughs> so these are, uh, so Sergio, these, uh, uh, again, uh, you know, it is difficult uh, to find a randomized, or there is, I shouldn't say it's difficult, there is no randomized controlled trial of glucose control in you know, people with uh, uh, with liver failure. You know, however, we do know generally that tight glucose control or very tight glucose control increases the risk of hypoglycemia. And it, this is uh, probably way more uh, applicable to people who have liver disease because they are prone to hypoglycemia for a variety of you know reasons that I think people are you know well aware of in uh, in any way, and so the consequences of hypoglycemia in uh, you know first the occurrence uh, or or the uh, you know or the chance of occurrence may be underestimated, and the consequences of hyperglycemia 
may be underestimated as well. Uh, there was, you know, a few, retros a few retrospective analyses have, you know, shown that uh, people with uh, decompensated cirrhosis, uh, you know, had a much higher risk of mortality if uh, they uh, developed hypoglycemia. And so I think the while we do not want, you know, blood sugars, I think we have moved away from the days where we want blood sugars running in the 300s and 400s from anyone. Uh, but I think the risk of hypoglycemia is is real, especially for the liver disease population, and that uh, you know our recommendation was uh, founded on the basis that you know we should make a recommendation which sort of avoided the risk of hypoglycemia, but at the same time uh, you know recognized that uh, you know more than moderate hyperglycemia is uh, you know more than more than a little to moderate hypoglycemia is you know is probably not beneficial for patients and so you know so that so extrapolating from the other evidence uh, and the wonderful uh, meta-analyses several meta-analyses that you know that have been performed we sort of issued a strong recommendation on uh, you know on, on keeping the blood sugar between 110 to 180 uh, which we felt would, uh, you know, sort of balance both worlds, not induce the risk of hypoglycemia and and not, you know, cause too much hypoglycemia as well. And this is actually a target that many ICUs have kind of fallen into in guidelines uh, for, for most critically ill patients. But like you, you pointed out, uh, in this particular population, hypoglycemia not only can be very um, recalcitrant to treatment, especially in the acute liver failure, yep. but also is associated with high risk. Correct. The next question relates to dietary protein load. Uh, obviously, in patients who have chronic liver dysfunction, so that would include our patients with acute on chronic liver dysfunction, we're always worried about hepatic encephalopathy, and there's always been like a kind of a popular uh, conception that if we give them too much protein, they won't be able to me metabolize that, and that could be a problem. What is the current thought, and what is the recommendation along those lines? I think the uh, you know current thoughts are that if you restrict protein, and uh, you know even in the patients with liver failure and cirrhotics, you know, all you do is lead to uh, amino acid breakdown, which, uh, which, which causes uh, uh, metabolic derangements. I, I, you know, the liver, there are, there is reduced, uh, there, is, there are reduced hypo, uh, glycogen stores, <laughs> sorry, there are reduced glycogen stores in, uh, uh, in uh, people with liver disease, and then you know when you become critically ill, there are this depletion of carbohydrate stores, and then you know, there is uh, amino acid breakdown. And if you don't feed someone protein, I think this just this response just gets exacerbated, and it becomes a vicious cycle, and it uh, gets worse. Uh, these people, more than others, already have protein. Many of these people already with liver disease already have severe protein calorie uh, malnutrition. And uh, you know they are not eating well before they become sick. You know, in, in in general, and you know breakdown of amino acids and you know make breakdown of more muscle is probably not a good thing. Probably exacerbates you know all of the metabolic derangements, including hepatic encephalopathy. Now there are not a lot of there's not a lot of direct evidence you know for what happens, but there are some small trials and there is one small randomized controlled trial which you know which sort of showed that. Uh, protein restriction had no benefit on either hepatic encephalopathy or, uh, you know, or uh, or mortality, and and so you know we 
thought that you know restricting restricting protein is probably pro physiologically uh, it was sure there is a small randomized controlled trial not a whole lot of other data but just physiologically it does not make sense to recommend restricting protein and you know in, in, in these people you know in fact if you you know if, if enough protein is you know the outcomes are like are probably likely to be better uh, if uh, people are fed and this and they are probably better in better shape for you know liver transplantation and so on and so forth you know if they get the required protein that they need excellent and the final considerations i would like to explore rahul relate to medications in patients with acute or chronic liver failure and there's two aspects that 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 you've commented on the guidelines one is looking for medication induced liver failure in these patients and the other one is to working with our pharma uh, pharmacy colleagues in the dose adjusting. Could you make comments on both of those? Yeah, sure. So, uh, you know, if you look at the uh, United States, uh, not worldwide, just you know, the, just we practice here in the United States. If you look at the United States, uh, and and if you look at uh, you know ALF, although it is rare or acute liver failure, uh, there about what. 50 to 50 percent of uh, of you know acute liver failure is uh, is drug related. Uh, obviously, the most common cause is uh, you know as as everyone knows is you know acetaminophen or, or Tylenol. But there are you know other idiosyncratic drug reactions, uh, herbal medications, uh, you know, and a lot of other recreational drugs. You know, a lot of other things which have been associated uh, with. Uh, uh, with liver injury, so anyone who comes in with ALF and ACLF, and what I, uh, you know, what I forgot to mention, I'm sorry, when you know, in the first part of the talk when we were talking about ACLF, is that uh, at least in the uh, European, uh, the canonic study with the European study, where you know, for the first time described this entity, uh, you, people were able to identify a cause in 60% uh, of the patients. A cause of ACLF was not was not identified in 40%. And, uh, you know, while people think that there could be, uh, uh, you know, sort of translocation across the gut of all of these bacterial products, which, you know, set up inflammatory response syndromes and, and things of that nature, it could easily be an overlooked medication, you know, that, that is causing uh, some sort of drug-induced lung injury that has caused deterioration and acute on chronic liver failure or even, you know, acute... Uh, acute liver failure so i think it is really really important that uh, and and you know this is a highly overlooked i, I think in clinical practice and it's uh, this is applicable to all of us even at liver transplant centers that we tend to overlook the uh, or, or don't uh, or, or and you know there is some sort of cognitive bias that makes us overlook drugs as an important cause of liver injury or acute and chronic liver failure and i think a thorough assessment should be done uh, once we are, uh, uh, you know, once our, our patients are, are, once our patients present, especially in people, you know, where where a cause is not easily identifiable. As to the dose adjustment of uh, medications, I think this, uh, you know, we again, this is very uh, the hepatic metabolism of drugs, and you know, and what happens to the metabolism in in uh, acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure uh, especially if people are on ecmo or on rrt or you know or, or have uh, you know mars circuits which a lot of liver transplant uh, uh, transplantation centers use is really 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 
you know underestimated and i think our pharmacists are the best people it's a multi it's a always thought of critical care as a team sport and uh, and you know our pharmacists are are really really important members of the team and this is where they can be you know so helpful in in those in insert of pharmacological principles and those adjustments in people who have you know chronic liver disease and 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 sort of because you know i can guarantee you the metabolism and you know the pharmacokinetics of you know many drugs are altered in people who have chronic liver disease or acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure excellent so we we discussed a a breadth of, of of topics related to this fascinating group of patients uh, with acute on chronic liver failure uh, i will put um, a lot of links in our show notes to the guidelines which i encourage our listeners to 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 read in more detail before we go to the closing part of the of our podcast rahul i just want to kind of uh, re-emphasize the six strong recommendations that you've all made um Number one, recommending against the use of hydroxyethyl starch for initial resuscitation in patients with acute on chronic or acute liver failure. Number two, recommending using norepinephrine as a first-line vasopressor in patients with ALF or ACLF who remain hypotensive despite resuscitation. Number three, recommend viscoelastic testing, TEG or ROTM, over measuring INR, platelet, fibrinogen in critically ill patients with ALF or ACLF undergoing procedures. Number four, recommending against the use of electrombopav in acute uh, chronic liver failure patients with thrombocytopenia prior to surgery or invasive procedures. Number five, recommending using vasopressors over not using vasopressors in critically ill patients with ACLF who develop hepatorenal syndrome and number six, recommending targeting a serum glucose of 110 to 180 milligrams per deciliters in patients with acute liver failure or acute on chronic liver failure. Fascinating discussion, Rahul. Now let's move away from, from clinical medicine. And we'd like to finish the podcast with some questions that are unrelated to the clinical topic. Would that be okay? Absolutely, Sergio. The first question relates to books. What book or books have influenced you the most, or what book have you gifted most often to others? Uh, I think the answer to both the questions is the same. So uh, the book I think that has influenced me the most and I've gifted most often is uh, by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And um, just for those who, who, who are not aware, Daniel Kahneman is one of the fathers of behavioral economics of cognitive theory. Uh, he obviously got a Nobel Prize for the work that is explained in that fabulous book. Yes. And it has tremendous implication to how we make decisions under uncertainty, which is every day in the ICU. So highly recommend it. We'll put a, a show link that is among my favorite books as well. And uh, really a fascinating topic. It is, it is, uh, it is, and uh, maybe I shouldn't be saying this out aloud, but you know, I have, I have reread the book six times now. So, well, there's nothing, not, nothing wrong with that. Uh, <laughs> we, 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 we read a lot, but sometimes people recommend that we should perhaps read less books and read the really good books more times. So you're right on track there, Rahul. Definitely a book worth rereading. The second question. Uh, is what do you believe to be true in medicine or in life that most other people don't believe, or at least they behave like they don't believe? 
Uh, okay, I think uh, Sergio, the the uh, you know the answer to the question is probably related to uh, you know a lot of concepts uh, that are uh, sort of so well elucidated in uh, thinking fast and slow. So what what I believe, I think, uh, and perhaps you know, I, I don't know if, you know how many people believe this or not. Maybe a lot of people do, but you know, I think what I believe is that. The greatest hoax of healthcare is that we convince ourselves that all of our actions benefit patients, and I don't think that is true. And uh, you know, I I think that uh, you know we take solace in all of these quality systems and our safety nets and things of that nature, and say and you know and and believe that you know we we are, we are providing you know really good quality and great great healthcare and. And what we do, what we fail to realize is that you know these systems and the people who created them say, suffer from the same cognitive biases, uh, you know that that lead to the errors in the first place. And the errors that occur are actually rare and you know one-off events. And we spend a lot of time, you know, sort of discussing those, you know, those of those events. And we don't ask the right questions. Our questions are, oh, you know, did an, what could be uh, done better or oh, what went wrong and what could be done better and where the real question should be you know given the exact same sense you know set of circumstances what is the probability that a better decision could be made and uh, and this iatrogenic harm is all around us and you know that we should be much more cognitively attuned to the amount of iatrogenic harm that you know that we cause patients and uh, and that you know and one of the one of the major iatrogenic harms is diagnostic error and suffers from the, again, you know, it is all due to the same cognitive biases that are explained uh, and the behavioral, behavioral aspects of cognitive decision-making theory that are explained in, uh, you know, in Daniel Kahneman's book. The other thing that's very fascinating about this, the, this issue that you mentioned, Rahul, is that uh, two things I, I'll comment. One is that COVID has been a, a, an exponential uh, lab test for seeing this every day in our behavior and the behavior of our colleagues. The, 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 the prevalence of these cognitive biases and how they've led people to behave one way or the other is evident every day during this pandemic. And it's definitely worth reading and reconsidering how can we do a better job. And the second aspect that, that is very relevant, and I was thinking as you were, you were, you were sharing your thoughts, is this whole concept of resulting where we attach um, the quality of our of our of our decision making to an outcome yet we fail to recognize that in life in general but definitely in medicine luck is a huge component of that yep. and you can have perfect reasoning make the right decision the patient dies and we may be thinking what could we have done differently what could we do better or on the other hand, what I see sometimes is we have horrible reasoning and the patient survives and we don't question anything because we think we did the right thing. And you were exactly mentioning that. And I believe it's a very powerful concept that all of us as clinicians should have the humility to really reflect on on a daily basis. Absolutely. The last question relates to what would you want every intensivist who's listening to us to know could be a quote or fact or something related to what we discussed today? So uh, maybe so, Sergio. I'll leave you with a uh, something that has uh, influenced me since I was a medical student. 
and uh, you know in india the the book that we used for uh, to learn uh, physical examination was called hutchinson's clinical methods and uh, and you know and he hutchinson you know was a fabulous uh, clinician from uh, britain and the book's been around in, since the 1920s but you know he had a he had a, a, a you know a few lines in there a quote uh, you know which i will tell you and you know i think that has influenced me and my practice uh, all my life so the so the uh, so the lines of the quote, quote is as follows from inability to let well alone from too much zeal for the new and contempt for what is old from putting knowledge before wisdom science before art and cleverness before common sense from treating patients as cases and from making the cure of the disease more grievous than endurance of the same good lord deliver us that is a very powerful quote a perfect place to stop rahul i do want to thank you first for the monumental effort that you and your a panel did for such a wonderful document in such an important topic for our clinical practice. And second, for giving us the time to discuss these topics in more detail uh, amidst uh, obviously a very difficult uh, surge in, 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 in Milwaukee and Wisconsin in general. Uh, please take care. I look forward to seeing you soon again in person, but also having you back on the podcast. Thank you, my friend. Thank you for listening to Critical Matters, a sound critical care podcast. Make sure to subscribe to Critical Matters on Apple or Google Podcasts and share with your network. Sound critical care is transforming the way critical care is provided in hospitals across the country. To learn more, visit www.soundphysicians.com.